0: Father, use your word now to challenge us, to build us, to grow us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And The year was 1775 and the colonies at that time felt the boot of the oppressive British government pressing on their neck. Someone came up with a great idea. It was to sew a flag that had a picture of a coiled up rattlesnake on it. And the words along the bottom of the flag said, You know it well, don't you? Don't tread on me. I have to tell you that it has been an interesting week of response to our election Tuesday evening. I had uh, a variety of swinging emotion and feelings as I watched the returns come in. And the thought came to me, Well, don't tread on me. I won't put up with it. The patriot rises up in you and and I've had people think that our country's going to come to an end. I don't know your political persuasion or background here this morning. We've pitched our pennies, haven't we? Our little slice of power that we talked about last week. And admittedly, it was disappointing not to see a selection of righteous leadership that we'd have liked to have seen that would stand for the innocence and the rights of the unborn that would stand for a morality and a a biblical righteousness in the areas of marriage and sexuality. And and so we have question and we wonder. and, And then I had a picture of a guy that was with Jesus one night and some people came to get Jesus, unrighteous people. He grabbed his sword and he started flailing it around and Even whacked off one guy's ear as he tried to get out of the way. And remember what Jesus said? He said, Peter, put your sword away. There's a different kind of kingdom that you need to care about than this kingdom. And so it was with a perspective that I went to bed and slept well Tuesday evening recognizing that when we rise Wednesday morning, God is still in control. He is sovereign over the affairs of mankind. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And with a growing realization this week, even as people have had all kinds of speculations and wonderings of what's going on and what the future course of our country holds, a growing sense of an oppressive government, rising taxes, the fiscal cliff, to stand among our leadership for things that we would consider unbiblical and unrighteous. It seems to me that in this context, that as much as ever, the church needs to be the church. Believers in the Lord Christ need to get their eyes on Him, need to live for Him. We need to, to live a righteous life in Christ Jesus. It also occurs to me, and If you will, turn to 1 Peter very quickly with me on our way to 1 Timothy this morning. That God's people, during the time that much of the New Testament was written, the church at that time and God's people and believers in the Lord Christ at that time, lived under terribly corrupt regimes. In fact, God's people often lived in a context of persecution. And they were scattered. First Peter is just one example. James is another. They're about 20 years apart in uh, their context of history. Probably about two decades in between. But notice how Peter begins, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, that's the believers in Christ. look, Look at this. Exiles of the dispersion, In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling of His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Do you recognize that he's writing to a people who live under a government that was anti-gospel, a government that persecuted and plundered, a government that took private property, a government that took away all savings accounts, that took away their right to work, that promoted idolatry, immorality, and they had to flee for their lives. That's what it means, that they were part of the dispersion. I want you to notice when you flip the page to 1 Peter chapter 2... How Peter goes on to instruct these people that they are to respond to their government. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. You believers who are under a difficult governmental time frame, who are scattered, who have tr- experienced tremendous injustices, who are not free to exercise your faith, you're not free to speak what you believe is the truth. Be subject, verse 13, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. They weren't free, but live as people who were free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up, and they were spiritually free, for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Well, God's people have had interesting and difficult days in which to live throughout different periods of history. I do not know what the future holds. I think that the church needs to be quiet now. Honor the king and pray for him. Pray for our leadership. And we need to be a church that works. You know, like a weed whacker that doesn't work is no good. Do you know that? You ever not be able to get your weed whacker to cooperate? A weed whacker that doesn't work is just worthless. You can't even use it for a boat anchor. The thing probably wouldn't even sink. We don't need a church that doesn't work. We need a church that works. We need a church that is living out the New Testament. We need a church that is living out the claims of Christ. We need a church that is so full of the love of Christ that a watching world cannot help but wonder what... Going on with those people. I invite you to turn back to 1 Timothy 5 as we progress through this letter to young Timothy from the great apostle Paul, instructing him how to pastor this church at Ephesus, a church not without its problems. And remember, this is a pastoral epistle, so it is direct instruction to the pastor as to how he is to lead, and there's lessons for all of us to learn in that context. We're in 1 Peter chapter 5, and I just uh, come before you with as great of a conviction as ever that we need to be a church that knows our Bible, that's living out the Scripture, and that is an effective church. We cannot count on a government to straighten us out. We should not wonder or marvel when unrighteous people select or agree with rulings that are unrighteous. You can't expect unrighteous people and immoral people to want to place righteous moral people in positions of power or to make laws that would restrict their own immoralities and their own lust for more. But the church in the middle of all that can be very effective. And we're effective as we know our New Testament and as we live out our New Testament just in practical everyday ways. And we work. The church works. God designed the church to work. I don't mean be busy. I mean that it works and is effective and it is a tool in the master's hand. And it is a living organism that is making a difference, that is shedding, shining the light of the gospel out and around our neighborhoods, our communities. And they know that God is at work among us. Not for the least reason that they see the love that we have for one another. And they see the obedience that springs out of of a love for Christ. And so the Apostle Paul gives some practical instruction to Timothy as to how his church can work effectively. He's going to divide it in two parts. I want to try to lop off the next 16 verses out of chapter 5. He's going to divide it into two parts, two practical ways that the church needs to work effectively. The church needs to be effective in its care for people, number one, in its care for people, and the church needs to work effectively in its care for widows, practical everyday stuff. As we relate to one another, as we minister to one another, as we meet the needs of the weak and the elderly in our congregation, God will use us to shed his light around our community. Apostle Paul says to Timothy, now remember, he's speaking specifically to a young pastor, and he's going to point out different categories of people in the church and how he should relate to them. There's good lessons for all of us, not just the pastor. In the first two verses is our first section, practical ways that the church needs to work when it cares for people. Do not rebuke an older man, he says, 1 Timothy 5, one. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. The Apostle Paul gives Timothy five reminders in his caretaking of the congregation and how to relate to the different age groups. It's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul, for one thing, did not designate a demographic as more important than others has been very popular in ministries and churches in the last quarter century to identify a certain distinct age group and to minister to them and forget everybody else i want to tell you the new testament church doesn't look like one age group the new testament church is from babies to old people It's all ages, interacting, coming together, honoring one another, loving one another, and that's what a healthy church is supposed to look like. We're not supposed to all just be aging 30s and 40s or 20s and 30s or whatever target group you want to go for. We're to be the body of Christ at large. As young Pastor Timothy ministers, the Apostle Paul gives him five reminders. The first reminder is, number one, honor age. Notice that his instruction is given in the area of spiritual confrontation. As a pastor, sometimes you have to confront people. As a pastor, sometimes you have to exhort. Brothers and sisters in Christ need to do this with one another. We're called in the New Testament to bear one another's burdens, and to and to deal with one another when we notice a brother who's erring or who's in sin. That is the context when he says, do not rebuke. Uh, some of you in your Bible, it might say, do not sharply rebuke. The New American Standard says that. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but encourage him. The idea here is a, a word picture of... Uh, the idea that is taken with a physical confrontation, the idea of the word that's translated rebuke, do not sharply rebuke, has the idea of a harshness or a violence, an attack. And it's, it's a word picture that they understood that though it meant to punch somebody or to jump on them and attack them, it was used for words. And um, we sometimes do things like that. When we, um, when we get in trouble with somebody or sharp words... You know, we might say, he jumped all over me. And so if someone didn't know our our colloquialisms or our, our figures of speech, they would see somebody out there just giving the boots to somebody. No, it's a physical expression, but it means with words. Getting in their face, jumping all over them. Dressing them down in, 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 a, in a harsh way. The Apostle Paul says to young Timothy, and he had just reminded him earlier in chapter 4 to not let anyone look down on his youth. Tim- Timothy evidently was a little bit insecure with his age and how to deal with those that are older. He says in relationships in the church, one of the things you want to do is you want to honor age and particularly if there's a spiritual confrontation or a rebuke that needs to take place, you need to do it in a way that encourages. The NIV uses the word exhort, where ESV translated, rebuke an older man, do not rebuke him but encourage him, ESV says, NIV says, exhort him. The New American Standard says, make an appeal to him. That word comes from a Greek word that some of you might know. It's the word paraclete. Paraclete. It's the idea to come alongside someone, put your arm around them and encourage them and go with them. It's one of the names used for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. He's, the Holy Spirit is our paraclete. It's a Greek word, means the Holy Spirit comes alongside, puts His arm around us, gathers us in, and He helps walk us through the trouble. He's our paraclete. It's a very comforting, comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of exhortation that Paul is telling Timothy. When you honor age, you don't go jump in their face. You don't go after them as a younger man. You honor them in the same way that you would your father. And you, number two, you use gentle words. Use gentle words. You you encourage him as you would a father. I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 6 where it talks about believers confronting believers who are in sin. And it says, if you do that, do it... You know what the next word is? Do it gently. Do it gently. Go with the, such a manner that you can draw them back in and help correct them. Five reminders for the pastor and for all people in the care of the people of the church. When it comes to the older man, honor age. Honor his age. Treat him like you would your father with some respect. Use gentle words, encourage him in such a way that it's as though you're alongside of him with your arm around him. He goes on to remind him to love his young men, love the men. Younger men rebuke them, encourage them as brothers. What a valuable thing to have brothers in Christ. Do you know that feeling? Brothers and sisters in Christ. To walk into the church and to know that there's a group of people there that you have a peer relationship with in Christ. You can count on them. You can can count on one another to to assist, to encourage, to strengthen. The Apostle Paul says to young Pastor Timothy, don't go lording it over them. Don't don't act like somehow you have a, a spiritual superiority to them. Treat these young men as your brother. Show respect to them. Encourage them in that way. Have a friendship with them. Honor age. Use gentle words. Love your men. He goes on to talk about older women. Respect older women. Now I want all the older women in the congregation to raise your hand. All right. Because I'm not going to identify you. All right. Um, He's going to use the number age 60 later in the passage when dealing with widows. Who are the older women? I was thinking about young Timothy in Ephesus alone having a little bit of stress, uh, trying to figure out how to lead this congregation, don't you imagine that one of the great groups in that church that ministered to a single, young, insecure pastor were the older women? I'll bet they fixed him cookies and (laughs) worried about his socks and things like that. Apostle Paul wants Timothy to be careful how he thinks about these older women. Respect them. Have honor. They're not old biddies. They're not old battle axes. That's so inappropriate. You are to respect these women. He then goes on, not only to respect older women, but number five then, to be proper and pure with the younger women. Be proper and pure. Five reminders for the care of people in the church. Honor age. Use gentle words. Love your men. Respect older women. Be proper and pure With these younger women. Look at the expression that he uses treat them as if they were sisters in all. Purity. What's his concern? It's obvious. It's the same concern that the Apostle Paul had in the book of Titus when he instructed Titus on who to teach in the church. Titus was also a young pastor in the church. He said, Titus, teach the older men, teach the older women, teach the young men, but teach the older women to teach the young women. He never tells Titus to teach the young women. Duh. Pretty obvious reasons. Single young pastor, be really careful. Easy way to bring disgrace upon the gospel, disgrace upon the church. I like to read Proverbs regularly. I've encouraged you often here to read the Proverbs of the day. What I mean by that is that Proverbs has 31 chapters. Most months have 30 or 31 days. And whatever day of the month it is, just read that proverb. Don't panic if you miss a day, whatever day it is. Today's the 11th day of November. Read Proverbs chapter 11 to get your little... Juice of wisdom that day. I'd like to take just a minute and on this idea of appropriate relationships and caring for people, the idea of how men and women, particularly younger men and younger women, are to interact appropriately in all purity as a brother and a sister, to get just a little bit of advice from a guy who had a lot of experience with women, some of them very bad, Solomon. Take just a minute and turn to Proverbs chapter 6 with me, would you please? It will only take us a minute and I think you'll find this helpful. Just some simple practical counsel from your pastor, from the Word of God to all of us. Some warning signs. Warning signs that you might be crossing the line and not treating your sister in Christ like the biological sister that you are called to treat her like. With that kind of respect and that kind of deference In all purity. Proverbs chapter 6, he gives us a clue in verse 25. Look at this. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, ESV says. Number one, flirty eyes. Flirty eyes. You don't flirt with your eyes with your sister. And you don't do it with your sister in Christ either. Number two, seductive words. Look at chapter 5 and verse 3. Look at chapter 5 and verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. I think um, both genders are vulnerable to seductive words. Notice that it goes on, the sentence doesn't end there. In verse 4, it says, But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Flirty eyes, seductive words. Back to the same verse we just started with, 625 for 625a. Lustful thoughts, lustful thoughts. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. What are you playing with in your imagination? You must not be a sister in Christ or any other woman for that matter. Flirty eyes, seductive words, lustful thoughts. And then finally, number four, the fourth warning sign or line that is easily crossed is sensual touch, inappropriate touch, sensual touch. Look at 520. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And do what? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. Don't touch. 713. She seizes him and kisses him. With a bold face, she says to him, I've had to offer sacrifices. I came out to meet you. I came to seek you. Yeah, right. Inappropriate, seductive words. Listen, you wouldn't do that with your sister when you were growing up. You don't do it with your sister in Christ. This is something Satan will use warning signs. Be on alert. Be on alert for flirty eyes, don't hold the gaze, seductive words, be very careful of your speech, lustful thoughts, controlled imagination, sensual touch, inappropriate touch. I thought that was worth looking at as we looked at part one, care for the people, a way that the church can work well is to care for people properly. Let's quickly move on for the care for widows, the care for widows. Look what he says in verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. What does he mean by that? Let your eyes go down to verse 5. She who is truly a widow is one who is left all alone. The care that Paul has and concern that Paul has for widows in the church at Ephesus is not a new thing. In many portions of Scripture, including the Old Testament where there was instruction under Mosaic law to cut the corners in the field in such a way that they left grain standing and did not do a complete harvest, do not do a complete cleanup job, so that the widows of the community can come and, and glean their own grain. James one twenty seven says, religion that is pure and undefiled, before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. God cares about widows. God cares about aging people. One of the concerns about the changes in upcoming dramatic changes in health care that we will face is a criticism, we'll see if it's lived out, that the extremes of life, the very young and the very old, will not be protected. In God's word, the very young and the very old are to be protected. They're to be sheltered, they're to be honored, they're to be cared for gently and carefully. He's going to talk about three things right away here when he talks about widows. The first is the family's priority. The care for widows, number one, you need to see, is the family's priority. This is the family's priority. You need to grow up your family in such a way, if you have young kids, that you teach them that when they are older, it is their job to take care of nanny. It is their job, when pappy's gone, to take care of nanny. You need to raise them up. I know that this creates all kinds of questions. Are nursing homes appropriate? This and that and all kinds of things. I want to tell you that part of the problem is, is that the Christian community has not modeled what God has called the family to do and to be. And one of it is the priority of the family is to take care of their own aging ones, dear ones, as long as they possibly can. Look what he says. Honor widows who are truly widows, that are those who are left alone, have no one else to care for them. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, verse 4, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. I always think of that phrase in to make some return to their parents as they change your diaper, now it's your turn to change their diaper. It's not easy to care of the elderly. and It'll change your life. I'm telling you, if you don't prepare, if you don't think, if you don't plan, you won't do it. God says it's the family's priority to take care of their aging widows. The second thing he comments on is the widow's spirituality. Notice that there's a contrast in the kinds of widows that were in the church, that they were observing in the church. She who is truly a widow, verse 5, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayer night and day. This is a a widow who has a heart filled with faith. She's continually praying. I know that many of the widows in our church pray for their pastor regularly. They pray for the people of this church. Widows often are lonely. One of the things that godly widows will do in their loneliness is they will begin to become prayer warriors. I remember worrying about Who's going to pray for me like my mom and dad pray for me when they're gone and they've been gone? I don't know. I trust that some of the widows in our church pray, and I think they do, faithfully. Their heart is set. They don't have answers. They need help. They're weak, and so they're trusting in the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. The contrast is, evidently, in the church, they observed others who were more self-indulgent, they spent their money. Paul says they're dead even while they live. They're not spiritually growing, they're not spiritually alive. It's going to affect the way the church should look at those widows and care for those widows. The third thing is the father's responsibility. We have the family's priority, the widow's spirituality, and the father's responsibility. Look at verse 7. Timothy is to teach these things so that everybody understands them. And are without reproach. They don't let down their responsibility. Verse 8, the reason I call this the father's responsibility is because he's the strongest identifiable caretaker in the home. And this verse, verse 8, is, in, is written with masculine pronouns. Look what it says. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. One of the things that should be observable and pal- palpable in the local church is strong men watching over their homes. That where there are men in the home, they take seriously their responsibility to provide for their families. It's irresponsible to be a man in your home and let the roof leak and let your family be cold. Get the heat on. Figure out a way to solve problems. It's irresponsible for you not to feed your family. That will get you out of bed in the morning and get you off to work. i got to feed my family. I have to provide for my family. Work hard. You're the man. It's your job to provide. How about spiritually? Are you providing spiritually for your family? Are you praying for your family? That's part of the protection. That's part of God's calling. The Father's responsibility is to love His family. To model for them their spiritual well-being, their physical well-being. It's why somebody can't come up your driveway, bust in your front door, and you be passive in the protection of your family. You are called right here by God to secure your home. You are the strong man. You are called to that. And, and couched in that is the care of aging parents. That's... To be a family priority, it's to to be a father's responsibility. Notice as he goes on that the Apostle Paul is going to give us four criteria now, four criteria for the widows that the church is particularly responsible to care for. Verse 9. Well, let me comment on the last phrase of verse 8. He says, if you don't take care of your family and provide for your family, and you neglect your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. What does that mean? I think what it means is the idea that we have the Word of God, we have instruction that teaches us to love one another deeply, that teaches us that we're to love our wives like Christ loved the church, that teaches us that we're to protect our children. We have biblical principles over and over again that teach us how to live like this, and some pagan out there hasn't been under the teaching of the Word, and he does a better job of protecting his family than some Christian guy who's who's slacking off. And he said, you're worse than the unbeliever out there, and you've been taught you know better. You're without excuse. Don't be like those unbelievers. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Now what are we talking about? Evidently, in the church, they kept a record. We have one here. Our deacons have worked on it. They continually... Uh, oversee it and we are trying to develop a better strategy, an organized strategy for the care of widows that would have needs in our church. And so there is a list of the names of people. We're talking to them and making phone calls to them and trying to touch base and observe them so that we know who are the widows in this church that really need care. Now, I want to say something. I think that the church needs to care for all needy people Either just because somebody doesn't meet the criteria, well, we'll let them freeze to death out in a snowbank. No, we don't do that. But it appears that with the responsibility of the church, they were particularly called to take care of these that were identified as these widows indeed. And there was a role four criteria to put her on that list. She let her be enrolled or noted. If she is not less than 60 years of age, criteria number one is her age, her age. She's to be at least 60 years old, the aging group. The second criteria is her marriage. What was her marriage like, having been the wife of one husband? Was she a woman of fidelity? Was she, is she known as somebody who had a sound marriage? Again, I don't think it means that we would not take care of somebody who had less than a stellar testimony, who was part of our church. But the Apostle Paul is particularly concerned about these dear saints whose husband have gone before them and they're without anyone to care for them. And he says, if they're old enough and if they had a good marriage, and then he said, watch their testimony. If they were the kind of person, number three, with a testimony, having a reputation, verse 10, for good works, she was she has brought up her children, has shown hospitality, has, I take it, brought up the children in Christ and in the church, has has taken care of her family, she's shown hospitality, she has washed the feet of the saints, she has ministered to people. I think about my mother, in her role as a pastor's wife of different small churches, and on numerous occasions, I doubt I can count them on both hands through the years, of the horrific situations where she took care of all, Dying widows who had no family and their homes were coming down around them and how she served them effectively. Did this woman in her life minister? Let's make sure we don't let her down. He said, she cared for the saints, for the afflicted. Has she devoted herself to every good work? What's her testimony like? So her age, she has to be over 60. Her marriage, was it a marriage of fidelity. Did she have a, a good marriage? Was she a godly person? Was she serving in the church? What's her testimony like? And the fourth criteria, I'm not really sure what to do with it, but it's what the Apostle Paul says is, uh, what's her marriage ability? Can she remarry? Yeah, I, I really don't know. What are you going to do, like have a small group class for widows on how to get remarried? You know, it could be the longing of Many of our widows to be remarried. What do you do with that? Statistically, the man goes first. Statistically, eight out of every ten women will bury their husband. Eight out of every ten will bury their husband. I heard a guy say, and I've repeated it this weekend, ministering with Don's children. One of the last things, the last lesson a father teaches his children is how to go to heaven. It's almost always the father who's going to go first. What do you do with this marriageability thing? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Now look at his words. Verse 11. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. It almost sounds like he's negative that they want to get remarried. But I think what his point is here, and I think it becomes clear in the context... That And let's read verse 12, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. His point is that some of the younger women who are more of a marriageable age perhaps in their youth, they're younger still, that their desire to marry causes them to make decisions that are less than wise, in fact, could even lead them into inappropriate relationships where they sin. And they ruin their testimony because they are so driven to want to be married again. That they do dumb things. Besides, verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. They talk too much. So I would, they long for relationship. So I would have younger widows. Here he corrects, he straightens this out. See, he's not down on marriage or remarriage. He said, I would have the younger widows marry, see, they're still of childbearing age, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Well, I don't know what you do if you're a young single woman who's still of childbearing age and you want to be remarried other than you trust in the Lord with all your heart. And you lean not on your own understandings. And in all your ways. What's the rest of the verse? You acknowledge Him. And he will direct your paths. Psalm 37 is a good psalm where he says, Delight yourself in the Lord and then what? He will give you the desires of your heart. I don't think it's magic. I don't think it's a little magic wand that you wave around. He's like, I can do this. I'm going to get me a man. I delight in the Lord. (laughs) We laugh, but if you long for a husband, it's not a laughing matter, is it? It's difficult. And all of you ladies in here, you never know when you're going to be in that situation. And some of you men. So we need to be wise, don't we? We need to be godly in our approach and we need to wrap up this message. Let's quickly read the rest of the text. So I would have the younger widows marry, verse 13, bear children, manage households. For some, verse 15, have already strayed after Satan. They've made bad decisions. Satan has caught them in the lust of their own flesh. So, Paul says in verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. This is a call for widows who are not eligible for the role in the church, they're not over 60, but they're a widow, they need other women in their lives. That's what he's saying. If you have people that you're close to, he says relatives here, but as you look around, if there's... If there's Widows who are not old enough to be on the widow's roll and they still desire to remarry and they are vulnerable to their own weaknesses in this area, they need godly women around them to help take care of them. Not men. Men. Unless she's over 60, you are not called to take care of the widows in this church. Directly. Okay? If she's over 60, you can do it. If she's under 60, the women will take care of her. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Listen, we need a church that works. We don't need an old weed whacker that doesn't start. We don't need a frustrating church. We don't need a church that doesn't work well. Paul's giving specific instruction when you care for people. Here's how you care for old men, young men, old women, young women, widows. I can't help but believe that a watching world has to recognize that there's something about those people. I don't get them. The preacher preaches way too long, but they are really good people. Something about them. As the church works the way it's supposed to work, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this instruction that we've uh, glanced at and how the Apostle Paul made sure that Pastor Timothy made sure that the church took care of their widows. Father, would you bless our dear widows at Fellowship Bible Church? You know their lonely hours. You know their fears and their anxieties. You know the burdens that they bear and don't know where to turn. Would you help us particularly our deacons, would you show us how to do our part, biblically speaking, to care for these precious ladies? For others who are marriageable, Lord, according to this teaching, would you provide husbands? Would you take care of them and help people to resist temptation, help them not to spoil their testimony with words or with behaviors that are inappropriate? You know the longings of the hearts that are in need today. Would you please meet those needs according to your riches and glory. Thank you for our great salvation in Christ. Thank you for your, your good hand upon us. Help us, Lord, to, to not be grumblers, but to be positive, uplifting believers in the Lord Christ, recognizing that you will take good care of all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.